0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Down from the Mountain, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for February 27, 2022, Transfiguration Sunday. In one of his many beautiful meditations, Franciscan priest and mystic Richard Rohr challenges mountaintop religiosity. That is, a religiosity that divides the sacred and special from the secular and ordinary. Quote, We have created an artificial divide or dualism between the spiritual and the so-called non-spiritual, Rohr writes. This dualism is precisely what Jesus came to reveal as a lie. The incarnation proclaims that matter and spirit have never been separate. Jesus came to tell us that these two seemingly different worlds are, and always have been, one. I agree with Rohr completely. But I struggle to live with the non-dual consciousness he advocates. That is, I struggle to see God in the mundane, in the muck and mess of my regular, unspectacular life. This has always been true, but it feels acutely true now, two long years into the COVID-19 pandemic. Where is God in the daily death tolls? In the isolation, grief and trauma the world continues to endure? In what sense are the hardships and losses of these days sacred? I ask because it is Transfiguration Sunday, the apex of the liturgical season we call Epiphany. For weeks we have caught hints and glimpses of the holy in Jesus' early ministry. A dove descending from the heavens, water becoming fine wine, a fishing net nearly bursting from a miraculous catch. But today we see Jesus in his unveiled glory. Today we see the view from the mountaintop. All three synoptic Gospels tell the story of the Transfiguration, and all three conclude the story with the healing of a demon-possessed boy down in the valley. I find this pairing instructive because it illustrates precisely what Rohr argues. What happens in the ordinary trials and tribulations of human life is just as God-infused as the experiences that occur on fate's mountaintops. Unfortunately, we don't always believe this. We fall into the habit of measuring the depth and success of our faith by the number of spectacular epiphanies we can claim. Have we felt the spirit in Sunday worship? Has Jesus spoken to us? Have we seen visions, encountered God's living presence in our dreams? Has God answered our prayers in the specific and concrete ways we desire? Most of the time, my answer to these questions is no, or at best, I'm not sure. From there, it's a short distance to feeling like a spiritual failure. Mature Christians, we assume, have frequent experiences akin to Peter's on the mountaintop. They see visions and dream dreams. Jesus reveals himself to them in spectacular ways they can't describe or deny. It is not true, of course, this hierarchy of holiness, this way of measuring piety. And yet it lingers in us, this yearning for a particular kind of affective experience to come along on a regular basis and validate our faith. The truth is, I like and want and crave and covet Christian mountaintops. And stories like the Transfiguration don't help. If Peter could see Jesus in his unfiltered glory, why can't I? The danger of God on the mountaintop Christianity is that it prompts me to compartmentalize my life. As if God is somehow more present during a rousing choral anthem, a stirring sermon, or a silent retreat in a seaside monastery than God is when I'm doing the laundry, buying my groceries, or sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic. In its worst iteration, mountaintop Christianity is addictive, leading us to spend our days pursuing a high we conflate with spiritual success. When we don't experience that high, we feel empty, unloved, angry or bored. Meanwhile, we don't notice the ever-present God in whom we actually live and move and have our being. Desperate for the mountain, we miss the God of the valley, the conference room, the pharmacy, the schoolyard. Worshiping the extraordinary does not make for healthy faith. Of course, whenever we think we have God figured out, it is good to be reminded that we're wrong. Whenever we try to stuff Jesus into a theological, cultural, or political box for our own convenience— It's good to have that box blown open with an encounter akin to what Peter experiences during the transfiguration. Whenever we grow complacent, self-righteous, or lazy in our lives of faith, it's good to be brought to our knees by a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. There are good reasons to encounter Jesus on the mountaintop. The problem in the transfiguration story is that as soon as Peter experiences a spiritual high, he tries to hoard it. What I hear in his plan to make dwellings is an understandable but misguided attempt to contain, domesticate, protect, and possess the sublime, to harness the holy, to make the fleeting permanent, to keep Jesus shiny, beautiful, and safe up on a mountain. After all, everything is so good up there, so clear, so bright, so unmistakably spiritual. Why not stay forever? Well, because God is just as present, active, engaged, and glorious down in the valley, as God is in the visions of saints, clouds, and shadows Peter experiences in the high places. In fact, what Peter eventually learns is that the compassionate heart of God is most powerfully revealed amidst the broken, the sinful, the suffering, and the despairing. The kingdom of God shines most brightly against the backdrop of the parent who grieves, the child who cries, the demons who oppress, and the disciples who try but fail to manufacture the holy. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. God's beauty is best contained in broken vessels. We might not like this aspect of faith, but it is an aspect that has much to teach us. To me, it's interesting, and sobering, to notice that the transfiguration doesn't grant Jesus' disciples the faith or the strength to heal the suffering boy or comfort his heartbroken father. What they experience during their spiritual high doesn't magically translate into vibrant, transformative faith down below. Which is to say, if we're sitting around waiting from our mountaintop experiences to mature and deepen our faith before we love and serve God's children in the valley, then we need to rethink our strategy immediately. The discipline of the valley happens in the valley. Finding God in the ordinary requires dwelling in the ordinary. We learn quotidian holiness only in the seconds, minutes, hours, and days of our regular lives. There are no shortcuts. God is not in the business of offering us permanent real estate on the mountaintops. So here's the great challenge of the Christian life. Can we speak glory to agony and agony to glory? Can we hold the mountain and the valley as one, denying neither and embracing both? Can we do this hard work out of love and compassion for each other, so that no one among us is left to hurt and suffer in the places where God's presence is harder to discern? I still yearn for mountaintop experiences, and that's okay. They'll come and go according to God's timing, not according to my micromanagement. In that sense, sublime spiritual experiences are easy. They require little from me. I can't control them. What's hard is consenting to follow Jesus back down the mountain. What's essential is finding Jesus on the long road, in the deep sorrow, at the heart of the unanswered prayer. What's key is discerning the presence of God in the spaces between the light and the shadow. With Transfiguration Sunday, we come to the end of another liturgical season. Having seen the brightness of Epiphany, we prepare now for the holy darkness of Lent. We can't know ahead of time what mountains and valleys lie ahead. We can't predict how God will speak and in what guise Jesus might appear. But we can trust in this. Whether on the brightest mountain or in the darkest valley, Jesus abides. Even as he blazes with holy light, his hand remains warm and solid on our shoulders. Even when everything else we're counting on disappears, Jesus remains among us. Jesus alone. So don't be afraid to come down from the mountain. Keep looking and listening for the sacred no matter where the journey takes you. Because Jesus is present everywhere. Both the mountain and the valley belong to him. He is Lord of all. For books this week, Dan reviews Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age by Anneli Nowitz. At its peak in the 10th and 11th centuries, Angkor in the Khmer Empire was the world's most populous city with a million residents. By the 16th century, though, the once-magnificent kingdom was a decaying urban grid that was largely abandoned. Similarly, by the year 1050... Cahokia in southern Illinois was the largest pre-Columbian city in what later became known as North America, and bigger than Paris at the time, but it too succumbed to urban death. Pompeii vanished in 79 CE when the eruption of Mount Vesuvius buried it under 20 feet of ash, and Catalhoyuk in Turkey, which was founded 9,000 years ago, was entirely empty by 5500 BCE. Why do people abandon their cities? How does it happen? And what are its causes? What lessons might we draw from these ghost cities for our own urban futures? Annalie Nowitz pondered these questions when she visited the archaeological remains of these four case studies in lost cities. She summarizes the scholarship about each place. She debunks common myths like the claim that the French discovered Angkor, or ideas about fertility goddesses. As must be the case, there is significant speculation and disagreement among the experts about interpreting these lost cities, especially in reimagining the everyday lives of ordinary citizens. There are also the dangers of overinterpreting ambiguous artifacts that of projecting our modern understandings onto ancient social structures, political organizations, and economic systems. Nowitz argues that there is a common point of failure in her four examples of urban abandonment a deadly mix of political instability and climate crisis. These cities didn't just disappear. People deliberately abandoned them for good reasons. She rejects Jared Diamond's controversial thesis that civilizations just collapse. And in her view, there's a direct line from the past to the present. It looks chillingly similar to what cities are enduring in the contemporary world. But her urban autopsies also suggest an equally powerful trend, human resilience in the face of profound hardship. So, our urban futures are not determined. They depend upon our very human choices. For Films This Week, Dan Reviews, Count Me In. This 80-minute music documentary by the director-producer Mark Lowe is all about drumming, mostly in rock bands, but also in other contexts, at home, as a youngster, a drumming club, drum circles, or a school band. For the most part, the movie moves between interviews with about 20 famous rock drummers, and then concert footage of these drummers plying their trade. In addition, Lowe includes archival footage of famous drummers from the past like Buddy Rich. I appreciated how Lowe included several women drummers who comment on their unique experiences in a male-dominated niche. My favorite was Cindy Blackman Santana, wife and tour drummer of Carlos. The people that Lowe interviews don't just like or even love drumming. They are passionately obsessed with it and could not imagine doing anything else in life as witnessed by family videos of them as little kids banging away on pots and pans like emerging prodigies. Several of them describe the exact moment or experience when they absolutely knew they had to be a drummer, and then the shock and joy when they actually started to make a living doing it. In an interesting side note, there's a brief lament about the advent of drum machines, computerized synthesizers, that threatens to displace the otherwise very human skill of what one person called punctuating life, with rhythm. And finally, for poetry for Transfiguration Sunday, The Valley of Vision. Taken from The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February twenty seventh, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.